Lord, it's a privilege to come and open your word. And Holy Spirit of God, we just pray that you would open our minds. There are, we need to learn. We need to be instructed. Oh, we need to worship. We need to glory in the salvation that has come through Jesus Christ. Point our hearts to him. Teach us more and more about justification by faith and the grace that has come from you, Lord. And we pray in your name, amen. So this morning, our passage is a small section compared to some of the big sections we've been going through in Galatians recently. So we're going to go through Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11. So let me read that to you. And I'm going to read out of the New American Standard. And this is the 1995 edition. It's the one that Paul used. So, no, he's kidding. So, so no, we were actually, we were just talking. You know, there is an old, a newer edition, 2020, that you need to stay away from because there have been major changes in the New American Standard. So, there's actually a new edition. I understand it's associated with John MacArthur, the Legacy Standard Bible, which looks to be a pretty good translation. But this is out of the New American Standard, 1995, and this is reliable. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Let me read one more translation. This is a translation by uh, Douglas Moo, who's a wonderful conservative Bible scholar. But at one time, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. Now, however, having come to know God, or rather having come to be known by God, how can you consider turning again to the weak and impotent elements? Do you want to become enslaved to them all over again? You are observing days and months and seasons and years. I fear that I may have labored over you in vain. So Galatians is a challenging book, isn't it? A lot of incredible Old Testament theology and New Testament theology, a lot of things that we have to, we have, to have our brains in gear and think. But let's just we're going to do a little bit of review as I come into the lesson this morning. What's the problem in Galatians that Paul is addressing? What's the big problem? Why do you write the letter? Judaizer. And good, Kelly. Kelly Westerman, you get the gold star. And the follow-up question is, what were the Judaizers doing? That's a question for Adam. Uh, that's a question for Adam. Okay, they're adding to the gospel. Okay, Adam, you, that, you get a half gold star. Okay. And they were, what were they adding to it? I was, I'm looking at Ben over here, Scarborough. I'm going to pick on you. <laughs> Great. So we're passing the, the lifeline, so to speak. You're right, circumcision. So the Galatians, uh, the Judaizers, and, and Dr. Moo, the New Testament commentator, I really like him. He calls them the Jewish agitators the Jewish agitators who are agitating the Galatian Gentiles 
to follow the law, specifically circumcision. And as we're going to learn in this passage today, it's, it was more than circumcision, right? It was the whole Jewish law in essence, because Paul tells them they're following the seasons and the months and the years, all those Jewish festivals. So they have them actually wrapped back up into the entire law. But circumcision was the sign of the covenant. It was the premier thing that they were having them do. So what's the gospel cure? What's the cure that Paul is teaching them? Or what's the key theological element You're not saved by works, by circumcision and following the Jewish law. How are we saved? By grace, right. And specifically the doctrine that Paul is teaching them is we're justified by faith. Great, Kelly, you get another gold star. You're you're, going to have a whole whole medallion today. (laughs) We're justified by faith. And faith, we're actually justified by God's grace, as someone said, but faith, faith is the instrument. Dr. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, the great theologian, used to always say, faith is the instrument. It's the instrument whereby we receive that justification by the grace of God. So there's a few questions I wanted to start out with, too, this morning. You, I have them in your handout. But things we can contemplate as we study this passage this morning. Do we really understand the gospel and the blessings that have come to us solely in Christ? I think that's something we have to contemplate. Do we truly understand what it means that we, every one of us who know Christ, are justified? We're justified by his work, by grace, received it through faith. And we walk in that. And that's, that's the next question. Do we live our lives on a daily basis knowing that? That we don't have to keep the law. They're not works that we have to keep. We walk in the grace of God through the work of Christ, what he has done day by day, that will never be taken away from us. Isn't that an amazing thing? Because that's the message that Paul is teaching. This, this is the corollary to, do we understand what it means that Christ was made a curse for us, that we might be justified by faith in him? Think about that. Every sin, too. Sins, past, present, and we're going to sin in the future, right? All of those, Christ was made a curse for us. Christ took all of those when he died on the cross for us, when he was made a curse for us. So, back to Paul's argument, there's nothing we can do, nothing we should do, nothing we have to do for our sins because Christ has done it. He has paid the price. So when we sin, Christ has paid the price. We go to him because, you know, we repent, but Christ has paid it. He has paid that price. Do we live as those, and and as a light of this, do we live as those delivered from slavery to sin? And we were, in fact, enslaved to sin, right? We were, all of us, we know, if we were saved, particularly as adults, we know there was a time when we were, in fact, enslaved to sin, right? Do we live, however, as those who've been delivered from that slavery and in the joyous freedom that has come to us in Christ? Or do we tend to fall back into that legalism? And that's one of the things, one of the temptations we have is that we tend to fall back into that legalism that can ensnare us even as Christians. You know, one of our scripture memory verses, Galatians 6.2, does anybody know that? Last month, our home fellowship, our small group, Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The law we live under is the law of Christ. Christ told us to love one another. A new commandment I give you, 
that you love one another. So I love Sinclair Ferguson, and this is a great quote from one of his books, The Whole Christ. And Sinclair has said that we are all, in fact, legalists at heart. Legalism is always crouching at the door, and we are drawn into that temptation to try and add to our justification by works, when in fact we can add nothing to our justification. So it's one of those temptations, and you can easily see how the Galatians might have fallen back into this legalism because they're new Christians, they're converted out of paganism. And here are these agitators, Judaizers, saying, well, it's good you're believers, but you can go further, right? We, we kind of hear that out there in evangelical, Christ, evangelical. We hear that out there in Christianity today. It's good you're Christians, but you can do more. You can add this to your faith to make you a better Christian. Um, the, other, the other issue we have to think about, too, is how we preach the gospel, I think. Do we add to the gospel anything but grace? When we're out sharing the gospel with people, do we say you have to do this, this, and this before you come to Christ? We can't because that's not the gospel. The gospel is the crucified Christ who is there for sinners. We preach the gospel of the crucified Christ, and they come and believe in him. So the work of Christ has been completed on our behalf. If he bore our sins in his body on the tree and paid the price, we could never pay. How then could we ever believe that we could add anything to our salvation? Back to the Judaizers. We receive God's gracious gift through the instrument of faith and the very ability we have to repent and believe is because of the preemptive act of God in regeneration. You ever think about that? Nobody is even going to be justified by faith unless first God has willed it and God has opened their heart and minds. And anyone whose heart and mind has been opened is going to repent and believe, right? Lydia, whose heart the Lord opens. You know, that's what happens. I always think of the great hymn we sing, and can it be, Charles Wesley. In fact, Wesley had been contemplating Galatians. He'd been reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And he strove, he struggled that he could be free from sin. And he was saved. And then he wrote that great, that great hymn, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what happens when we become Christians, right? It's all because of God's preemptive work. He opens our heart and our mind, and we repent, and we believe, and we come to Christ. That's the message of Galatians. So again, this was the problem in Galatia, where the Christians were lured into circumcision and following the law as this means of becoming better, more complete Christians. They were adding to their justification. So Paul is, in fact, going to tell us he's quite perplexed and astonished that they could so quickly abandon the gospel and follow these Judaizers in light of God's great grace. And in fact, you know, it hadn't been too long since Paul had been there, and Paul had been preaching this message to them, and how how could they abandon this so quickly? So Galatians 3, 7 through uh, 3 7 through 4 7, Paul has laid out that whole message. So, over the last few weeks, we've been studying this. We've been studying this great section where Paul lays out to the, to the Galatian Christians okay, you want to follow the law? Let's go back and talk about the law. Let's talk about the purposes of the law. Let's talk about why God gave the law. But let's talk about justification by faith because Abraham was not justified by the law, he was justified by faith. So I, so I kind of gave you this summary, and we're going to look at this summary just a minute as we come to our passage this morning. But if we go back to Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9, 
The reason I'm talking about this is because Paul laid out this great compelling case for the Gentiles. He wanted them to understand. He wanted to basically refute these Judaizers, but he wanted the Galatians to understand where you stand before Christ. What has God done for you? That's his whole basis for saying, how in the world then could you abandon all of this? Come back and look and think about what the Lord has done for you. So in Galatians 3, 7 through 9, we learned that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. That it is in fact by faith and not by descent. So Paul is making that argument that that's how Gentiles become part of the promises and the covenant with Abraham because Abraham was justified by his faith. And then in Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14, Paul talked about the blessings of Christ's death on the cross. He talked about what the law brings. The law brings a curse, right? The law brings a curse because we cannot keep it ever. The law, we're sinners, right? We're transgressors. We'll never be able to keep that law. You guys read the Old Testament, right? You read through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you realize every bit of their life was regulated. There was no way they could, they could keep all that because they're sinners, right? No one can be justified by the law, but Paul goes on to tell them that was never the intent of the law. The righteous, it is the righteous shall live by faith. They're justified by faith, not by the law. And Christ redeemed us from that curse of the law, the curse that we bring on ourselves because we're sinners and we can't keep the law. Christ redeemed us from that. And Christ's redemption secured a couple of things, Paul will teach in that section, that the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's radical. That's radical radical because the Gentiles are not physical descendants of Abraham, right? They're not. They're not of the lineage of Abraham. But Paul is arguing it doesn't matter. By faith, you now are descendants of Abraham. Faith comes, you're now his descendants. And the second thing he's going to teach is because of this, the Gentiles, because of God's promise, because of what Christ has done on the cross, the Gentiles receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That was one of the great promises even of the Old Testament, back to Isaiah 43, the coming Spirit, the Spirit of God who dwell in our hearts, the Spirit of God who Jesus said, it's better I go away and that He comes, the Spirit who came at Pentecost, the Spirit who worked in power all throughout uh, the land when Paul was preaching, the Holy Spirit who now comes to dwell in us when we come to believe in Christ, all because of Christ's work, because He took the curse of the law. Verses 15 through 18, who is the promised seed and did the law null the promise? Paul's going to argue to them because the Judaizers might have argued, well, what about the law? The law came. Paul argues that Christ is the promised seed of Abraham. Again, it's not physical descendant. It's not physical descent. Christ himself is the seed of Abraham. And the law came 430 years later. The law cannot annul those promises that God gave to Abraham because Christ is the fulfillment of that covenant with Abraham. Then this great passage, Galatians 3, 19 through 25. So they might say, well, then why in the world did God even give the law if all of this is true, Paul? God, Paul says that God gave the law because of our 
transgressions until Christ would come. The law was the intermediary, right, until Jesus Christ would come. The law points everybody to the need for Jesus Christ. The law brings us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And you learned that the law, as Paul uses the, the Greek words, the pedagogos, that, that is a tutor, but it's more than just a teacher. It's a disciplinarian. In essence, a disciplinarian always there to, to instruct and correct the kids. That's the way the law was. If you think about it, if you read, again, you read back through the Old Testament, every bit of their life was regulated. Everywhere they turned, law, 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 everywhere. Everywhere reminding them, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you can't keep this, you can't live up to God's holy standards. So that was the purpose. It was there to show us we need Jesus Christ. And then that great verse, you know, as we'll talk about in a moment, at just the right time, God sent Jesus Christ. So verses 26 through 29, Gentiles are sons of God through faith in Christ. We're baptized into Christ. We've put on Christ. There is no longer distinction. There is no longer a physical descent distinction between Jews or Greeks, between male or female, between slave or free, in the body of Jesus Christ. This is what God has been working through. As, as some of the old preachers would say, the scarlet thread of redemption all through the scriptures. This is the moment when Jesus Christ would come and fulfill the law. And the law has no longer a purpose because Christ has come. And we're now all one in the church of Jesus Christ. And then last week you studied 4, 1 through 7, that great passage where Paul now says, Jesus Christ came at the appointed time, at just the right time, in the fullness of times. That's a great Christmas verse, right? I like to read that at Christmas. In the fullness of times, God sent Jesus Christ. He had led everybody to realize they're sinners. You need the Messiah. You need him. And he did. He sent him for that purpose that we could now become sons of God. Sons of God. We could cry out and call, Abba, Father. We're now heirs of God. This is such a great thing. Paul is telling these Gentiles, you've not only been adopted into family, you're heirs of God through Jesus Christ on the side. Why in the world would you ever want to follow these worthless Judaizers? Why in the world would you ever want to forsake all of this that God has done? Because the law has no purpose now, because Jesus has come. He's given you the greatest. He's given you the most. So that's Paul's argument. So Again, all of that is the basis to these, these, just these few verses we're talking about this morning. All of that background that Paul has laid. The riches, the treasures, the greatness of all these things that God has done for the Gentiles through the work of Christ, through his free offer of salvation, through justification by faith, not keeping the works of the law. How could you ever consider falling back into slavery Keeping the law will enslave you, it will show you to be a transgressor, and it will take away your freedom. And in fact, you're headed back to slavery. We found freedom in Christ. So, let's look at Galatians 4, 8 through 11. This first verse, Paul reminds us right off the bat who we were before we came to Christ. He's reminding the Gentiles, but us also, he has these great statements. However, at that time, and some of the translations are, but then, when you did not know God, 
you were slaves to those which by nature are no God. Do you ever think about that but then time in your life? Do you ever think about that, especially those of you who came to Christ as adults? There was that but then time, right? Before you knew God, before you were a believer. Paul calls them back to remember that, to where they were before he preached the gospel to them, before they came to Christ. I think about that often, my but then time, where I was before I came to the Lord and the joy of where I am now by His grace. <clears throat> Paul goes on to say, when you did not know God. So what does it mean to not know God? Think back to when you were in that but then time period. What did it mean for you to not know God? How did you not know God? How did your life show you didn't know God? I'm not... You just live for yourself. I, that's great. I'm, I'm paraphrasing that right, Susan, right? Okay. You live for yourself when you're in that former time. That's great. And what did you live for? For yourself. That's right. And what did you serve? Because we all serve something in life, don't we? Self. That's right. And a slave to sin. That's right. Slave to the flesh. Saved to the lust of the flesh. Slave to the world, right? Saved, slaves to Satan. Slaves to this present evil age, right? When we did not know God. I knew that. I knew that. I wasn't saved until I was 19. I know that. I understand that. What did we not know about God, though? What was hidden to our eyes? What were we blinded to? What were the great truths about God that we were unaware of? Yes, that He so loved us that He sent His only begotten Son that we might be saved. That's wonderful. That's right. It was hidden from our eyes. There was a veil over our heart and over our eyes, wasn't it? We were in that but then, that former time, right? We didn't know God as Redeemer. We didn't know Him as Savior. We didn't know Him as Lord. We didn't know Him as the sovereign ruler and creator of all the universe. We didn't know him as master. We didn't know him as sustainer. We didn't know the joys of walking with him. We didn't know any of those things because we were cut off in our sins and lost. That was our but then time. We were slaves, as he goes on to say, we were slaves to those which by nature are not gods. Uh, so the Galatians themselves were truly slaves, right? They were in many instances to pagan idols, right? They were slaves to pagan idols. We were slaves to our, we talked about this, worldly thoughts, lust of the flesh, pride, selfishness, lovers of self, but they actually followed pagan idols. And what does Paul talk, what does he say about these pagan idols in other places? We might look over at 1 Corinthians It's kind of nice to think about this because this is what they were, they were saved out of. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, for example, verse 5. He talks about, uh, let me back up to verse 4. Therefore, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no one, no God, but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, 
Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things exist. And we exist for Him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So Paul teaches there is, in fact, but one true God. All these idols are not true gods. But he does have something to say about these idols in a couple of chapters later, 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20, what they actually are. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 and 20. And, you know, Paul's dealing with some difficult issues here about food sacrifice to idols and should Christians eat food sacrifice to idols. So that's why he's dealing with all of these things. What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? I mean, you think about it. You look, look back to the Old Testament prophets and you think about it, how the prophets used to mock the idols, right? Their wood, their, their stone, do they feel? Do they talk? Do they actually see you? Do they actually hear you? And that's what Paul is saying. Is an idol really anything? Do you ever think back to Mars Hill? Isn't it interesting when Paul went to Mars Hill and he's looking at all the idols and, and, and the statues, the unknown gods, and he said, you know, they, they do have that statue to the unknown god, right? Just in case they left one out, right? But they're really nothing, right? But Paul goes on in verse 20 to say, no, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, that is to idols, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So the forces behind this pagan idol worship, it's not that the idol of wood or stone or wherever it was is actually a demon itself, but that they're worshiping this world system, that Satan is behind all of this and this worship of idols. So Paul tells them, just remember, that's who you were. That's who you were before Christ. Again, he's just said all these things we talked about, what Christ did for you, what he did for you, making you a son of God. Remember that and remember you're here now with all of those blessings and this is where you were and God pulled you out of it and put you into this place where you are now. And then he comes to that great, that great next verse. Let me, I'm sorry, give me just a second here. I flipped my Bible. But now, verse 9, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. This is one of those great moments. We had our but then times, didn't we? But thank the Lord, we also had our but now time. That but now is God's intervention. That's God's intervention. That's his salvation to them to bring them out of death and into life. It's that Ephesians 4, we can turn over to Ephesians 4, just to, I mean, sorry, Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
That is Paul's great phrase he uses so often, again, to tell us, remember, 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 but now what God has done for you. And that's exactly what he does with the Galatians. But now that you have come to know God. We talked about what it means to not know God. Let's talk about the good stuff. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean for us? How do we know God? What do do we know about God? There are objective things we have to know about God, right? But what are some of those objective things we know about God? He's sovereign. That's right, Steve. Good. Creator and sustainer. That's right. Was that Justin? Okay. Oh, John. Give you (laughs) He's redeemer, right? Now we know that. That's what we worship. He's Redeemer. He's Savior. He's the one who loved us from before the foundation of the world. We understand that now, don't we? That's, those are some of the objective things we know about God. Let me read to you a, a short paragraph. Speaking of a great book you should all read if you've never read it, Knowing God. This is probably one of the greatest books that's been written in the last couple of centuries by J.I. Packer. Tom Pennington once said it's number one book on his list. So this is my old worn out copy. But this is a great chapter from Packer about what we're going to have to know when we know God. We shall have to deal with the Godhead of God, the qualities of deity which set God apart from men and mark the differences and distance between the Creator and His creatures. Such qualities as His self-existence, His infinity, His eternity, his unchangeableness. We shall have to deal with the powers of God, his almightiness, his omniscience, his omnipresence. We shall have to deal with the perfections of God. God is perfect. He is perfect in everything. The aspects of his moral character which are manifested in his words and deeds, his holiness, his love and mercy, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his goodness, his patience, his justice. We shall have to take note of what pleases him, what offends him, what awakens his wrath, what affords him satisfaction and joy. And then he goes on to talk about the fourth question in the shorter catechism. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Those are those objective things that we have to know about God. But it's more than just the objective things. There's the experiential side. As true believers, as we experience God, we know God. We know God because He answers prayer, right? We know God as we pray. We know God as we read His Word and the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds, right? He teaches us about himself. He teaches us the objective truths. But as we walk through life, as we face hardships and trials, as we face sickness and death, as we face joys, we know that these all come from God's hand, right? We know these things. That's how we come to know God too. We walk with God and we come to love him. This is what about John Piper. Dr. Piper has helped us a lot as we come to delight ourselves in God. We We desire God. We delight in Him because we come to know Him. 
We come to know who he is, not just the objective theological aspects of God. And by the way, Packer talks a lot about the experience of knowing God too in this book. But we come to know he's faithful. We come to know when we go to him in prayer with these trials and struggles that no matter He's going to carry us through them, right? He's going to carry us through them. And someday we will be with him. That's what we know too. And it will be joy and glory. We come to rejoice like David in Psalm 16. And this is such a wonderful verse. The end of that psalm. Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. That's what we come to know about God. We come to know all of these things and that there are pleasures seeking Him that are forever. Forever means forever. It means not just in this life, but think about when we are translated to heaven someday, whether that's by death or by life, we will know pleasures before His throne forever. Forever. The greatest pleasures to delight ourselves in worship in God. That's what it means, I think, to know God. And we will never fully know him in this life, but we have eternity. Isn't that a joy? We'll have all eternity to come to know and to love and to worship our Lord God. That's the great joy. You've got your homework to do for all eternity, right? To come to know God and worship him. And won't that be wonderful? I I put this quote in there in your notes, too, from Richard Longnecker, who's another great conservative theologian. This is out of his commentary on Galatians. This is intimate, experiential knowledge in the intimacy of a family relationship. So let's come back to what Paul is telling the Galatians. You have all of this. You have all of this. You have this relationship with the infinite creator who's blessed you. Why would you ever, ever turn your back on him? So, the next phrase, though, is critical. He says, now that you have come to know God, and in the Greek it's really clear, rather to be known by God. So what is he saying? We come, you come to know God, and Paul, like he stops himself, no, 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 even more importantly, that God knows you, right? That's the important thing. What does it mean that God knows us? What does it mean? This is the divine initiative, isn't it? We can look at 1 John 4.10. We won't know God unless God first knows us. 1 John 4.10, right? And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the key. We wouldn't ever know God unless God had first determined to know us, unless God had first determined in his plans, in his grace for no merit in us, that he would know us, that he would send the son of God to die for us, to be the propitiation for our sins. And that, in that little phrase is exactly what Paul is telling the Galatians. This had nothing to do with you. This started before the worlds began in the council of God, that he determined to love you Galatians. And back to everything he's been teaching them about Old Testament theology, 
He planned and purposed all of this for you, ultimately through His Son and through the work of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, now Paul comes to the great paradox. In light of all of these things, how is it, if you could just paraphrase what Paul is saying, and I love, I love what, Phillips is kind of a, a little bit of a paraphrastic translation, but it's kind of fun to read sometimes. Phillips says, frankly, you stagger me. You make me wonder if all my efforts over you have been wasted. I could say, as I said here, how is it possible in light of all these things that you could turn your back on what God has done for you and follow the Judaizers, fall back into legalism? How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? It reminds me of Peter's uh, verse, 2 Peter 2, 22. He says, it's like the dog returning to the vomit. It'd be better if they had not even known the ways of righteousness. It's like turning again to the sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. And Paul describes the law, the things they're turning back to, circumcision and observing the Jewish law. How does he describe them? He calls them the old pagan ways. They're elemental things. They're weak. They're worthless. That word worthless could be translated impotent. They have no power. Weak and worthless, elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. He's used this kind of language also in Colossians because the Colossians were kind of in a syncretic, uh, syncretistic religion too with paganism. He called it the things they were turning back to weak and, and, and worthless, elemental things it's kind of interesting because you realize they were not turning back to old paganism. They were actually turning back to the law. And this is Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, who studied under Gamaliel of the tribe of Benjamin, who now looks at the law and who says, these are weak, these are worthless, these are impotent things. They had their purpose, it's gone. This is Paul. I think this is amazing. This is, this is also from Longnecker. I'll, I'll read you this quote. Beyond question, Paul's lumping of Judaism and paganism together in this manner is radical in the extreme. No Judaizer would ever have accepted such a characterization of Torah. That is the law. Torah is the law, right? Of Torah observance, nor would those in Galatia who acceded to their message. See, you see what he's saying? Paul is making this radical accusation that what you're going back into is just like the old pagan ways you used to live in. You're being in bondage to these old pagan ways. And that's what the law has brought you to. That's, that's what the law is like now. But the Judaizers wouldn't have said that. They'd said, no, 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 this is God's law. This is the Torah. And even the Gentiles of Galatia would say, no, no, wait a minute. We're following God's law. We're not going back to those old pagan ways. But this is the message. By accepting circumcision and observance of Torah that went with it, they had no thought of returning to paganism. Such a move, they believed, would bring them closer to perfection in their Christian lives. You realize that? That was the message by the Judaizers. This is going to make you more perfect Christians, right? This is going to make you better Christians. We're going to add to your justification. You'll have better standing before God. You likely might have heard that. If you're circumcised, if you'll follow the Jewish law, you'll just be better Christians. 
In fact, they might even have thought that obedience to the Jewish law was their only real protection against the ethical perversions associated with their former paganism. For Paul, however, whatever leads one away from sole reliance on Christ, whether based on good intentions or depraved desires, is sub-Christian and therefore to be condemned. This is the, the reason I bring this out is this is the pathway that we can fall into error, into doctrinal error, into legalism too. There are so many teachers out there who teach this in such a subtle way that if you do this, you'll be a better Christian. You'll be a more perfect Christian. We are perfect in Christ. We are perfect through justification, by grace, received through faith. We have nothing that will make us more perfect, that will add to our justification. And that is exactly why Paul uses the strongest language possible to tell these Galatians that is, you can't add anything to it and don't even try. Don't even try. And he says, by doing this, you're going to fall back into slavery by this legalism. And it's such a contrast. He's going to say this in the next chapter, Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. God set us free. He set us free from this bondage to sin and bondage to the law and bondage to all those things in Christ. Don't fall back into those things. Don't fall back into legalism because God has set us free. He goes on to say, do you want to serve them all over again? No. They, he, he explains here in, in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He makes it very clear that they're falling back into the whole of the Jewish law again, not to be enslaved. So let's look at the last verse, verse 11. This is Paul's fear. In looking at all of this that's happening in Galatia, and looking at the clear message that Paul preached to them about what Christ has done for them, he has a great fear, right? I, I put in your notes, the train wreck is coming, right? Paul can see down the tracks he could see the train coming, and there's another train in the station, right? It's not moving, and the it hasn't happened yet. We haven't had the massive, massive derailment and disaster, but it's coming. Because he see the, the tenses he uses are active tenses and when he wrote this letter. All of this is act actively happening, and he's seeing it happening, but they haven't apostatized. They haven't, they haven't denied the faith totally yet. So... What does Paul fear? What is he fearing? Tim, I heard you. Say it again. Yeah. They will not accept Christ alone, right? Right. They're going to fall back and add. They're going to, in essence, end up denying the faith, right? They're going to end up, in a sense, denying the faith of Christ. They may prove themselves not to have been true believers to begin with, right? That may be the question because what we, we have many of us who may be new believers. If we're in Christ, if we're saved, we can't fall from grace. We won't fall from grace, right, if we're true believers. But we sometimes Christians can get led away into doctrinal error, right? Christians who are true Christians can get into doctrinal error, but this was a core serious error that actually undermined the gospel. And what Paul is fearing is maybe some of them are not true believers to begin with, too, that they're falling into these great errors. What they were doing was so far from living out the Christian life in quiet trust in Christ that Paul feared for them. The apostle was afraid lest he had wasted his time in evangelizing them. 
What was the point of preaching salvation by the sheer grace of God if people were going to respond to it by living their lives in bondage to the elemental spirits and the like? If Paul had done nothing, they would have remained in bondage. His preaching had taken them out of this slavery. But now it appeared that that was only a short time. The Galatians were set on going back to bondage. This is a great quote from Chrysostom, the church father. Chrysostom, however, reminds us of the importance of lest, which is as much to say, the wreck has not yet happened, but I see the storm big with it, so I am in fear, yet not in despair. So, again, Paul sees all this happening, but his hope is, his hope is with his great exhortations that he will lead them back into the true gospel. So let's just look at some application of this passage as we close here in the next five minutes. So I think we always have to remember the dangers of legalism. We talked about this that are out there for us today, looking at the problem in Galatia and looking at the dangers we can subtly fall into. One of those is how we share the gospel. So we could think about maybe how the gospel was perverted in Galatia. But, and many of you are great evangelists. I know that. You're out sharing the gospel routinely. But how do we share the gospel to people? Do we share the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we share Christ and him crucified? Or do we share Christ plus anything else? And you know, a lot of those anything else can be a lot of other things, right, these days. You must be baptized. Now, God wants us to be baptized, right? But that's not a prerequisite to faith. Are there any prerequisites to coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Must be called. That's right. The preemptive work of God. That's right. God's election, God's calling. But we don't know that, right? First off, we don't know who the elect are. We have no idea. As Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, would say, we preach to everyone, you know, because on one side of the gates of heaven, it says, whosoever will may come. That's what we see. Whosoever will may come. We preach to everyone. On the other side of the gates of heaven, it says elect from before the foundation of the world, right? Our, our goal is to preach to everyone throughout all the earth. Whosoever will may come. Christ died for sinners, right? So that's, this to me is a practical question. We're evangelizing with people who may be in all kinds of whatever issues in their life. Do we say... You must leave all of these before you can come to Christ. No, those would be words. We tell that we preach the Christ to the cross because if they come to faith in Christ, and Steve said, if God works in their lives and opens their eyes and brings them to Christ, they will repent and believe. They will forsake those things and come to Jesus Christ. We preach to them Christ of the cross. We preach the grace of Jesus Christ. The other thing I have here, number two, is do we make living the Christian life a checklist of rules to follow? Or do we set out our heart to seek and to love the Lord God and read his word and pray to know him out of our love for him? This is one of our great struggles in, in our Christian lives, isn't it? This is that great, great struggle we have between holiness and then becoming legalism, right? Do we fall into these legalistic checklists sometimes that if I didn't read my Bible enough this morning, you know, I'm not truly a strong and good Christian. You know, we can easily fall into those checklists 
of sanctification that can in fact lead us into legalism, that can in fact lead us away from God and from our views of God. We do it out of love, right? That's why we do these things. We pursue holiness in the fear of God. We pursue holiness because we love him. That's why we do these things. We read the scriptures because we love him. We pray because we love him and we want to know him, not for checklists. Do we live as free people? And again, I love that verse, Galatians 5, 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. We don't have to worry about these things. Our sins have been paid for. We don't do anything. We can't add to our justification. We have to live as free people. And again, it's number four, how do we live our lives before God? How do we, in light of all of these truths, do we live in that joy? Do we live in that freedom? Do we live knowing we've been redeemed? Do we know, live knowing that he's paid for our sins and we don't have to worry? People would say, oh, that would lead you to be an antinomian. It doesn't. It leads us to be biblical Christians, doesn't it? Because biblical Christians who love God are going to fulfill the law of Christ. We're going to love one another. We're going to serve one another. We're going to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And do we rest solely in Jesus' blood and righteousness with full assurance that his blood is sufficient for all our sins, past, present, and future? And when we sin, we know. We go to him in prayer humbled, repentant, but we know he's forgiven them, right? We know he's forgiven them. We all are going to sin. We're going to sin today, right? <laughs> we go to God, we ask forgiveness, but we know he has. We know he has. There is no worry about that. We know he loves us. His love is enduring. And do we understand that legalism robs us of our joy in Christ and distorts our view of God? That's what we have to remember we fall into legalism, we lose this joy. We want to walk in this joy and freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, walking in holiness with him out of our love. And I ended with this quote from Leon Morris, who's another great commentator. The life of faith is a wonderful life, but it involves living as free people with all the demands that that makes, as well as the privileges that it brings. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Lord, it's, it's just humbling to come before you, to talk of these things about what Christ has done for us, to talk of these things about being redeemed by his blood, to know that he became a curse for us, to think about the greatness of our salvation. As we walk in this world, Lord, with all the trials and struggles, to know you're our God, that we know you, that you walk with us, that you love us. God, help us to walk as holy and godly, joyful people, free in Jesus Christ, free from the burden of our sins, free from slavery to our sins, enslaved to you by righteousness, by the blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, and bless us this day as we worship. May our hearts be lifted up in praise to you. In the name of the Savior Jesus, amen.